everybody, and welcome back to Critical Thinking, Episode 9, Yogfaril Uncovered. Uh, we are Critical Thinking, and we, basically, this is a, if you're tuning in for the first time, I don't know why you're tuning in on Episode 9, but this is a Critical Role rewatch podcast where uh, the three of us, uh, myself, Jack, and Jeremy, go through watching uh, the entirety of Critical Role from start to finish and discussing the events of each episode from a narrative perspective for you, the listener. Um, so, you know, if you want to have something to accommodate your your own personal watch of the series, or if you just want to skip the four, three to four hour episodes and listen to roughly an hour chunks of dialogue, you know, just to speed up the process, we're here for you. Uh, and speaking of who we are, I'm John, John Bates, at John A. Bates on Twitter, and as I mentioned before, we have Jack. Hey, everybody, I'm Jack. I'm at AltF4Gamers on Twitter. And Jeremy. Hi, I'm Jeremy. I'm at JThomas411Mania. And this week uh, on Critical Role, we uh, we have Orion Akaba as Tiberius, Laura Bailey as Vexalia, Taliesin Jaffe as Percy, Liam O'Brien as Vaxil Dawn, Marisha Ray as Keyleth, Sam Regal as Scanlan, and returning, Travis Willingham as Grog, and as ever, Matthew Mercer as the Dungeon Master. Previously on Critical Role, the party was given a quest to go to the, uh, from the capital from the capital city of Iman to find the missing hero, Lady Kima of Vord, a halfling paladin who had gone missing uh, on a pilgrimage underneath the city of Craghammer. They went to Craghammer, got uh, permission to go down to the mines and look for Lady Kima, whom they found uh, in the Underdark after after winding their way through various tunnels and de- and deadly traps and encounters, and befriending an illithid along the way, which, as we've discussed previously, was a great idea. Um, The ting is where I would be smiling and be shining off my teeth. Anyways, after some battle, so yeah, they battled their way through uh, several Duragar and a couple of Illithid to find their way to Emberhold, the citadel or fortification of of the Duragar where they found Lady Kima, and they also found the uh, King uh, King Murgle and uh, the Queen whose name I can't think of, uh, Queen Queen Alara. Uh, of the Duragar, whom they fought uh, with Tiberius posing as the god of the Duragar, proving yet again that Tiberius doesn't know how to interact with people. Grog, uh, so two of the two of the party were turned into stone by the gaze of Basilis, Tiberius, and Kima, and Grog was captured by Lady Ulara. They escaped from that. Uh, they escaped from that. Uh, healed healed uh, Tiberius and Lady Kima. Keyleth and Kima had a thing, and then they continued on through the field of glass and bone that. Pike had uh, had a vision about where they found another Eldritch Abomination thing, uh, which they killed and continued on their way. And at the end of last episode, they found Grog in a bucket about to get eaten by Duragar. And that's where we pick up. So, having finally caught up with Queen Ulara and found Grog, the team moves in to try to free their friend. Tiberius basically stumbles into the camp, and as he does so, Vax grabs him and Scanlan calls out to the queen. With Vex and Trigget backing him up, he demands that she free Grog. She laughs at him, and and the previously invisible Illithid blasts part of the group with psionic energy. At that point, Tiberius lets fly with a fireball uh, from behind the queen, taking out one of her guards and and almost taking out a second one, but also scorching Grog in the process. As as a point, as a point of personal indignation, uh, how do you guys feel about friendly fire, accidental friendly fire? <laughs> so here's the thing about accidental friendly fire. That first word is kind of key. Yes, accidental friendly fire is should generally be the only kind you have, and that's usually due to lack of awareness or luck of the draw or just you know 
bad deployment. Someone had tactics, someone, you know, right? someone someone had you, their owl pet in the middle of the room where the fireball was going. Right, you are never <laughs> going to get over that, are you? No, uh, I'm not. That sort, <laughs> that sort of thing. Yeah, and that's one of those things that I think you know, if you're going into any combat situation as as part of a game or as part of as part of a storytelling exercise, you're going to have to be able to to get over that because it will happen. The problem is when it's not accidental or when it's easily avoidable. Yes. For me, anyway. So as a – obviously, in, in, in D&D games, it happens. It, 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 it can happen all the time, especially if, yes, if you're a player who is either not paying attention or the, it, the, the layout isn't clear or – Or just unfavorable. Or unfavorable – or if you're new and you don't know your spells as well as you should, whatever the case may be. Um, as a storytelling standpoint, mm-hmm. if you're doing it, you're probably doing it as a character choice. You're doing it, I mean, you can, as as somebody writing a, a story, if somebody hit somebody, it's because you decided that they did so. Yeah. So it can be great in terms of, portraying a a, a a character's weakness or ineptness in combat, or it can be done, and if done right, in a sneaky way that works as a great callback, if somebody's actually trying to, trying to fuck the party. There's also the way that I've used it more in my writing, which is, it's, it's the ultimate easily recognizable tough call. Yes. When 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 you're you're faced with two problematic situations and neither outcome is perfectly acceptable, and the choice is put in the hands of whoever the protagonist is, mm-hmm. do I pull my punches and possibly allow the enemies to escape or get away or be be treated with less force than than is required, or do I cut loose? And possibly cause some collateral damage to other people that, if you're doing, if you're writing it well, they at least care about. Yeah, yeah. it's the, it's the speed shoot the hostage moment, right? Um, which can also be a great character trait if you're trying to portray somebody as particularly ruthless. Mm-hmm. Now, this is also a um, this is also some, this is something that I find is actually a little overused in certain storytelling um, tropes. Uh, for instance, the uh, crime procedural. Yes, there is in in it. You, I challenge anyone listening to the podcast to name a police procedural that has gunfights in it. That at one point, someone has not had to draw on a draw on an ally who is currently being held hostage by an enemy with a, something to their throat or head, and had to shoot at the person holding them while trying not to hit their partner. Yeah. I challenge you to find one because it doesn't exist. It's it's one of those it's one of those television drama things as well because in the real world that generally never happens because yeah. a it's super risky, b it's completely reckless and you'll probably lose your job, c even if you even if even if the only people that get damaged from it are the bad people, there's going to be a mountain of paperwork, a huge internal investigation, and your reputation yeah. is going to go down the shitter. But it's an easy, it's an easy, quick drama spike. It totally yes. is. It's great for tension. It puts a character in danger who might not have otherwise been in danger, and it's it allows 
like like Jack said, it puts that character in the the position where they need to make a very difficult choice. And of course, if they take the shot and they the, they hit the bad guy and not not the ally, it makes them look particularly badass. Yeah, and that's all dependent on how well you portray it as to whether it works or not. Of course. But but in turn, I, I definitely agree with John that in terms of an NYPD blue sort of yeah setting, it's been it's been done so much in, that NYPDU, all three CSIs, NCIS, uh, Castle, Castle, uh, Castle uh, was the one that I kept thinking of. Yep, yep. But not even not even and those. Castle it happened every other episode. I was going to say not Brooklyn Nine Nine. You those. know, yeah. we're talking about. I mean, fantasy order. setting shows. Yeah, um, it's always it's always the one the one you know sort of creepy bad guy who who has the dagger to somebody's throat. It's the assassin, or it's mm-hmm. the you know any setting that that is uh, a particular action setting has probably used it at some point. Now the trick there is that in a fantasy setting, you can use a fireball. <laughs> bring this hold back person. to hold person is a great spell. <laughs> hold person is your you friend. Um, so yeah, uh, go really back. I just wanted to, I just wanted to get your your thoughts on friendly fire. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and and early this episode as well, we get a great uh, example of insult diplomacy. Yes, also I was hoping um, we we're going to get to that. Yes, <laughs> have, have and, we have, have we reached there yet? Yes. Yeah, because that was right when Scanlan called out the queen. Oh, you know, so he, he goes in and Scanlan's his greatest right, dialogue points. Right, you know, because and and insult diplomacy is, can be can be done really well because it when it's done correctly, in my opinion, anyway, it comes out and you think, oh, this person is trying to negotiate and cause a dialogue and you know work something out and try and diffuse the tension and and you know resolve the situation with a minimum of bloodshed and aggression. But about three sentences in, usually, they immediately just you start to realize, oh no, this is this is a distraction. This is them just trying to destabilize, tilt the the person that they're talking to, so that all the tension is focused on them, so that the murder squad has the thirty seconds they need to set up and start doing their murder squad shit. Yes, yes, this was the moment where scan. Oh my god, the exact phrase was, um, I would promise your safety, but I don't make promises to dogs. Speaking to Alara. And there are a couple other things in there, too. He insults her intelligence at one point about something about keeping keeping words, words simple or something like that. And yeah, it serves as a perfect sort of sort of way that they all focus on Scanlan, so... Tiberius can get to where he needs to, and and and, and everybody's in a perfect spot. Yeah, but it but it only work. But if you're going to employ the device, I would say it only works well if you subvert audience expectation while yes. you're doing it. You know, if Scanlan had given an aside to his own group, "Hey, I'm going to go in and distract her." It would have lost the Im- impact because you already know what to expect. Then, you oh go yeah, in and you know. But when you push somebody forward who looks like they're trying to calm things down, and then they immediately halfway through switch gears and start amping things up instead, that makes it a much more effective device, in my opinion. Yep. So yes, that all happens, and then the fight begins. 
fast forwarding back, Tiberius lets fly his fireball. <laughs> takes out one of the guards, scorches Grog in the process. Uh, then Vax takes out a Duragar, Vax puts down another one, and Keyleth turns into what elemental does she turn into? Earth, uh, Earth elemental. Earth elemental? Yeah. Keyleth turns into an Earth elemental and moves to the ground to the cart holding Grog. She's going to go basically grab Grog. So uh, the Lithid tries to teleport away, but Tiberius stops it and fires a fireball in response. Uh, which I believe is it that, or is somebody else get the get the killing blow on the illithid? Mm, I think it's the fireball. I think it's the fireball. That kills I'm it. Yeah. pretty sure that that was it. Yeah, and Tiberius's counterspell. I would love to see that become narratively performed in some work of fiction because I honestly can't think of a good narrative use of the concept of counterspell. Oh, hey, um, there's there's there, great there, ways to do it. There there are well the I mean the obvious one is the the Magic the Gathering novels uh show it. See, show I haven't basically. read any of those. So. I haven't yeah. read the novels. Yeah. <laughs> right, but what but what I mean, yeah, cuz mechanically it's a very interesting concept that, you know, yeah, a spell is something you craft and if somebody fucks up your crafting, you don't get to cast the spell. Well, there's also um, there's a, a great book series, the Saga of Recluse, which has a very unique and interesting method to to spellcasting, um, and a very interesting sort of mechanics to it. They also delve into breaking spells, is the way it's referred to there. The way I gotcha. always the way I always referred uh, I've always handled counterspelling, and this is because of my Mage of the Ascension background is. Once you recognize exactly what it is they're doing, whether it's for, for you know, you, you figure out what energies they're manipulating or whatever that whatever is the case, you reach out with your own magic and essentially you either pull all the magic away, you flood your own energies in there and muck it up or something like that. Mm-hmm. Which allow for some great, really sort of narrative visual uh, sort of sort of depictions. Yeah, lots of the the way I've often seen it described as is uh, far more subtle. Mm-hmm. Where it's counterspelling spells are very spells are very complex workings of magic and very complex weaves of thought and energy. And the more complicated something is, the more simple the fail the more simple the fail state becomes. Uh, and so often it's described as as the the counter mage reaching out and just plucking a, a, a plucking a piece of the spell out and causing the entire thing to unravel. Yep. It's a house of cards. Or, yeah. or you know, having a, a a big rock fall on them that yeah, also that counters also the works. spell quite effectively. Usually, yeah, usually that works too. <laughs> uh, so Keyleth grabs Grog and moves him back to the group, and Scanlan charges toward uh, charges forward and hugs the queen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And then she Another disappears for some reason. Banishment. Uh, he uses banishment to 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 make her pop away. So at this point, they set about freeing Grog, uh, and and once he's safe, the queen pops back. Keyleth grabs her, and her eyes change, uh, and she begin. Kavarin begins to talk through Ulara. Uh, he invites the group to come see him. He tells them that the temple is open to them, and that they are welcome to come and see him as honored guests. And then, the, and then, does Kavarn kill her, or do they kill her? Kavarn kills Kavarn her. Kavarn kills her. kills her. Yeah, which is, which is such a great moment. And and again, it's 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 a little tropey, but tropes are fine. It's just how well you 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 execute. How, how well a trope frequently. is not a cliche. No, a trope is not a trope is not a problem. It is, 
it, it, it's when your your use of the trope is lazy that it becomes a problem. But the idea of and as they've been going on throughout, you know, the last eight episodes. This is nine, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, eight episodes, little pieces, and more and more and more revealed of 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 Kavarn's nature and of information about him, and then to have the you, know, you have Kavarn himself speak through one of his minions, and then just the minion is such a nice moment because it gives you an idea of okay, we were just fighting these people. And you know they were they were threats. They they took them out fairly quickly, but still they were they were threatening. And this is what Kavarn was able to do is a great reinforcement of just how threatening this character is. Not to mention we get a bit of the personality of the character. Yeah, because because a trope like that can be deconstructed in a way to really give you some insights, like you were saying, Jeremy, into the into the psychological makeup mm-hmm. of the villain behind them you know because yeah you you start to get that sense of you know all right we already know that he creates these abominations and sends them out so he's got a little bit of the mad scientist in him or mad magician in this case but then okay so now we're starting to see the kind of puppet master aspect of his character now as well and then the immediate execution of the pawn after it's been used, there's there's an increased level of ruthlessness, you know. And so we're starting to get these puzzle pieces of of who we don't know what Kavarn is yet, but we're starting to figure out who he is. So yeah, that happens. Um, and then they scour the they they loot the bodies uh, looking for anything that they can find. And then after that. Uh, Keyleth asks Scanlan to distract Kima while she talks to the rest of the group. Uh, yeah. And 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 Scanlan goes over and is Scanlan. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about rape culture. Yeah. <laughs> let's, yeah. Have that con- let's do that. Let's have that conversation. All right. So and and specifically, I want to I want to get your guys' ideas and 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 opinions on uh, you know because we've we've content, talked a little bit about content content warning. Content warning. We're yeah. going to be talking about rape culture. Yes. Yes. But and specifically, how do you put characters because characters like this have relevance. Yeah. Right. Uh, characters that don't respect personal boundaries that that consider you know whether it's uh, other people's bodies or other people's desires or other people's choices or free will even you know where they're willing to impose their own desires on any given situation how do you think you can effectively have characters like that in your works of writing or production without without cushioning the problematic nature of them and and without normalizing that sort of conduct or trying or or projecting that it's fine it's just funny so the 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 the, the trick for me is to I find that I find that you have problems with characters like this when you try to portray them as anything more or less than what they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and it happens when people try to they try to soften the blow of a character that's like this, so they make him the funny ha ha character, but then it implies that what he's doing is funny. Yep. Or they just ignore it entirely and don't put it there, which then implies that you're ignoring that it exists. In my opinion, and again, this is all my opinion. This is the opinion of a you know uh, of a, a of a 
cis white male for all that that means. And even though I, I, I hate having to put that descriptor into the world because I think that just is sort of not quite derogatory, but diminutive of the conversation, but Mm -hmm. because so that people, you know, know that I'm aware of these factors, right? Ignoring them doesn't make them go away and making light of them doesn't make them go away. It doesn't make that kind of a person any less of a problem. It doesn't make that kind of a person any less of an issue. It doesn't make that culture or the culture that glorifies or encourages that any less of a thing. But shining the light on it in such a way that it is presented, no, this is not a good thing. This is something that that person is doing, and they might otherwise be a decent person, but in this moment, that is not a good thing they're doing, and the rest of the world or the rest of the group reacts accordingly to that, like you would. I find it's probably the best way to represent that without A, softening the blow, and B, ignoring it altogether. It's not handled very well in, in this in this instance because it is a group of friends who know each other well enough to know that this is joking and that this is play and that this isn't the way Sam Regal actually thinks or acts. This right. is just the way the character Scanlan thinks and acts on occasion. And so they're used to it and they, they don't quite see it in the veneer that other people that are looking at it from the outside can see. From a writer's perspective, the way I would have had this scene play out is Scanlan would have done the thing that he does, and then Kima would have just put him in, like, like shoved him onto the ground and started beating the shit out of him in the background while everybody else was having their conversation. So, like, so that the distraction still happened, and it's still comedic in a sense, but the comedy comes from the unexpected, oh, Scanlan's getting his ass beat in the background. Yeah. As opposed to Scanlan's being a, a pervert in the background. Right. That's the yeah. way I would have handled it. It's how to handle it very, 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 very carefully is the correct is, is the <laughs> correct answer. That's fair. That's fair. I mean, it's all about tone. It's all about wh- why are you putting it in there? I bring it to a to, to role playing aspect. I used to I used to uh, run an online World of Darkness uh, uh, role play chat site. And for a long time, I literally had a rule written directly into my, the, the character creation guidelines of you're not including rape in your, in, your, in your backstory. End of story. Because I had so many people do so and do so for very, very poor reasons, handle it very, very incorrectly. Uh, so on and so forth. I have seen out of out of the many instances of that, I've seen maybe one, two where that's been handled okay. And I'm talking about like hundreds of examples. Yeah. You have to, it's a really tricky topic because, I mean, even shows like, like you know, Game of Thrones, which, which you know, most people universally love have stumbled when they've tried to tackle this topic mm-hmm. because it's all, again, it's all about why you're putting that, why you're putting this scene in there. Now in that show's case, it's because, well, because George R. R. Martin put it in there, which, which sort of brings it back to him. But if you're putting it in there as a way to just say, well, terrible things happen in the world. And this is what, you know, this is an example of that being the case. 
why does it have to be that one terrible thing right. instead of one of many other things that don't cause severe emotional distress, not in the characters, but in the readers. If you're putting it in there in a, a legitimate character development point to, is it about, is it the equivalent of a fridging where you're putting it in there to motivate one of the, the probably male characters to, to avenge the, the, the character being victimized, victimized in whatever way that's wrong. If you're putting in there as something for that character to over to to eventually overcome, and again handle it carefully, then good for you. That's that is a that is potentially a good way to way to use it. But really, it's it's something that is so tricky to put in and put in right that yeah, you can't completely ignore the issue. I agree with that because it, that pretends it's not a concern. When it really, really, really is, no. Just be very aware when you when you do put it in. I am going to put out a counterpoint to two of those statements. Okay. One, putting it in there to show that the world is a bad place. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is something that it can be very emotionally scarring for the reader or the viewer. That being said, if it's in there alongside entire villages getting destroyed in fire children women and men all alike getting murdered brutally i feel like if 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 the people being murdered brutally is okay then there's a then 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 you can't go oh yeah slaughtering those 47 kids was okay but raping that one person was not well it's all about depiction uh, yeah, but that's that's why that's kind of where I'm where I'm at right there. It's like th- that's that is then doing the disservice of treating that as sacred ground. Yes, like no, it's... that we'll show people killing kids, but we won't show anybody. Like that's that that's that's. I feel like that is even worse than ignoring it, because that's now saying what happened to you is so bad. We will show we will show people murdering kids, but not that. That puts it on a pedestal, and that makes it more important or more like like aggrandized than it needs to be. Well, and I would say that there's a level of meta composition there as well, because yeah. murder is one of those things that has been in the public uh, consciousness and in performance consciousness long enough that we know how to portray that in a way where you know it happens, but there's a level of detachment from it. Yeah. Whereas I would say rape is one of those things where it's very difficult to portray that in a detached sense. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. And it's all about you like, know. if um, the, well, if if you you just, if, sorry, go ahead. No, I said the other, the other one was, um, I noticed that you said not that you shouldn't ever use it as motivation for a male character. And this is something I did. Know, Yes, you did. You did. I rescind that state. Wait, which I, I disagree. You shouldn't or that you should? <laughs> you shouldn't. You said that you shouldn't use it as a motivation for a male character to go out and get like to get revenge or anything or something like that. Well, basically, okay. Don't yes. don't do fridging yes. is what as I, I yeah, think what yeah, Jerry I, was trying to get at. I but, did yeah. say that, and I stand by it. But go ahead. So the, what I'm saying is. Again, to put this uh, another statement that I shouldn't have to make, but I'm going to. I am what I am, what I will freely admit to. I am the ultimate feminist. And what that means is equal treatment in every aspect. 
And one of the things that I dislike is when men are considered to not have to deal with things that they do have to deal with, because while yes, rape is extremely emotionally, emotionally scarring for people that have gone through it. And I'm not discounting that at all. There is a different, but still level of emotional scarring for the loved ones of that person, especially if it's a husband or someone who is in, in that sort of a romantic relationship with that person that can be explored in a narrative sense. And I think should be explored for because that is there is another subsect of people that don't get their stories told that don't get that sort of representation in the media or in any sort of media um because it's seen as secondary or tertiary or not the focus and again it's the same thing of you're putting one level of pain on a pedestal above another level of pain i mean that's and okay i and i would say that's a valid valid evaluation if now, that's the actual case, but I mean, I yeah. think if if anybody reviews modern literature, there are far more examples and representation of something horrible happened to my female, therefore I. Yes, yes. There, yeah, there, 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 there are there is, something there, horrible happened to me. I'm there a female. Is, there is that, that's true. There there are incorrect ways to display that particular motivation or that particular relationship where it, you know, the, 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 the person, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a female uh, because that's the other thing. It's like, it could be right. a, it could be a homosexual couple. It could be anything right. where this happens to. There is, there, there, there is the problem when the other person becomes a MacGuffin. Yes. Becomes a plot point, becomes a plot device. But when the, but the, there is a story there about two people, both of whom in different ways have been extremely violated and yes. how the both of them react to and are motivated by that violation. So that like and, and, and that's why, again, with the same thing that I was saying previously, discounting that story entirely because it is often used incorrectly, I feel is a disservice to the people that need that story to be told. So here's what I would say about that. A couple things. Actually, it's sort of it's sort of one story that one argument that relates to both of those points, which is actually it really isn't. But um, <laughs> we're getting there, guys. Hang with us. We'll get there. <laughs> almost done. Almost done. So so really quick to tackle the, the the first point is it it is all about how you depict it. If you are if you are describing, you know, this scene of, you know, this town being slaughtered and it's, you know, pillagers stabbing people on the side, and then you go into five pages of detail about the sexual assault that's that's taking place, there's a problem. No, yes. Because yes. that's disproportionate. That's disproportionate. It's disproportionate. In one it's focusing on the one thing for whatever reason probably if it, if it's most modern literature for lurid reasons whereas if you're depicting all of it equally well then you're writing for a very niche audience first of all um, but Valid. if you are okay fair enough as far as far as the second point uh, uh yes there is there there are absolutely stories that that deserve to be told about uh, about everybody involved with the sit with with uh, an instance of sexual assault having to deal with it. I feel like this is less of a problem when we're talking about 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 literary fiction, uh, because 
your book can be as long as you want it to be. Yeah. But in most in most cultural depictions of this, you have a very limited real estate in terms of how much how much you can tell and the vast, vast, vast quantity of stories that deal with the 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 male reaction to it completely disregards the actual victim. Yeah. And if you only have, let's say you're you're a television show with thirteen hours to 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 devote to it, and this is a major arc in that goes down, you only have that amount of time. And if you're giving equal story, well, if that's the entire point of it, if it's like American Crime season two actually dealt with this very well, where 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 it's dealing with everybody's reaction to it, okay, great. Yeah. But if you only have that small amount of time and you're discounting certain aspects of the primary survivor of it in order to say, I want to see what everybody else does. I feel like you're doing it wrong. Well, yeah. And, and as I said, I, I de- definitely most commonly, this is a subject that is mishandled. Yes. In, in media. It is, it is definitely a subject that is completely mishandled. But my, my statement was that just because it's mishandled does not mean it should be ignored. No, it should never be ignored. Absolutely. And that's, yes, that's Because that. in, in many cases, ignoring it would be worse. Right. And this is so. a subject that let's, you know, as a disclaimer, you know, you could teach several college courses on and still not fully plumb the depths of. Oh, so. yeah. Exactly. So and it's definitely bear, something bear in that... mind, all listeners, this is our 20-minute evaluation of a hugely yes. complex topic. So <laughs> bear with us as we work through this. And it's definitely <laughs> something that needs to be discussed in media. If if media is not talking about it, you know, not that media is the only place that can handle this kind of stuff, clearly. But in a lot of ways, media leads the conversation on a lot of this kind of stuff. Yeah, and if and media is not talking about it, then the, a lot of times it's not being talked about, not necessarily among the people who are, who, who are activists about it, but the people who wouldn't otherwise be talking media, about it. Media is the lens for the common man to see the issue. Yes. It is, it is the lens for people who, who will never and have never experienced trauma or pain on the level that other people have to get insight into that trauma and into that pain and to see and empathize with what other people are going through. That's, yep. that, that's how media is the connector between people. It is, it, is a, it is a method by which Joe Schmo in Arkansas can understand what somebody living on the streets of New York feels like somebody who is going, who is in a battered women's shelter in Atlanta feels like someone who is, you know, has fled, has fled to the other side of the country to get away from an abusive, from an abusive spouse feels like, because they will, they likely will never have to deal with that. Yeah. And by that token, nothing can be ignored. Right. Mm -hmm. It, you know, it, it definitely has to be handled better and yes. better than it was handled in the moment that we're talking about right now. Yes. But it can't be ignored. And that, like, if, if we go, if, if, if listeners, if you come away with anything from this conversation, <laughs> it's that <laughs> no matter how bad of a problem it is, ignoring it doesn't make it go away and doesn't make it better. And depending on the person, ignoring it makes it worse. Yep. 
because and now now you're treating them with kid gloves. You're giving you're 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 treating them easier than you would have treated somebody else because of what they've been through, and that is innately an isolating feeling. And, and or alternatively, as, like, you're you're yeah. you're tacitly saying that what was done by someone else wasn't that big of a deal. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Which is and, which is just as problematic on the yeah. other side of the coin. Yeah. And it's... I'm not and, and and to be clear, I'm not talking about this from a place of ignorance. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yes. And 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 unfortunately I think that could very easily be said for most people in our society is that this is an issue that most of us are at least a degree or two related to. Yes. You know, because if it hasn't happened in your own life, I can almost guarantee it's happened in the lives of more than one person that you know. And if you are a writer and you're trying to write one of these, one of these things and it hasn't happened to you or you haven't been around somebody who's experienced it for God's sakes, talk to somebody. Yeah. Who has before you just throw it in your story. Now, because now don't go to the psychiatric ward and talk to somebody no, who's recovering. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> talk to somebody who This is this is a topic that needs to be with approached with sensitivity. <laughs> Approach by it carefully. <laughs> but and that's something that that's an it just a good general writing tip. Whether you're yeah. talking about something like that or if you're talking about you know, you want you are uh, a white cis male, and you want to put a, a an African American woman in your as as a major character in your storyline. If you want that character to be less than a cliche, for God's sakes, talk to somebody, find out specifically a little a bit what they're like, yes, talk like, to somebody who fits that that character, and yeah. find out what their experience is like. Before you just put what you assume to be their experience in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The, the concept of write what you know is not <laughs> one that's meant to say, all right, only write about the things you know. Yes. It's one that's meant to say, if you don't know about something, learn. go learn about it so that you can write about it. Yeah. And it also is not write what you know and then make up what you don't. So, right, no, God, no. to reel it back in, to yes. reel it back in. <laughs> By the way, we are talking about a D and D show here. <laughs> Kima should well, have Kima should have uh, laid Scanlan out. Yeah, yeah um, she should have been. And just or, or have, something along that. Have line. that be the distraction in the background is Kima just on top of Scanlan, punching him in the face over and over again. <laughs> Meanwhile, this is going to be a popular episode. Well, I, I, I don't think so. I'm not going to go on another tangent. <laughs> <laughs> Keyleth grabs the rest of the party and brings them over to have a conversation. Uh, and she asks the group to leave and head for the surface. Uh, she says, you know, our mission was to find Lady Kima. We found her and bring her back, found her and bring her back. We found her. If she refuses to go, then we can just leave her behind and say, you know what, we, we tried, but she didn't want to come. To which the rest of the companions uh, very very nicely and very calmly said, Keyleth, what are you smoking? And <laughs> Clarota, who was in on this conversation, by the way. <laughs> yeah, 
there was lots of warm fuzzies towards Clarota at, at moments this episode. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, lots of warm fuzzies to Clarota. The 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 not paladin. Clarota says that yeah, Kima's unstable, but you guys agreed to help me free my people, <laughs> reminding them of the thing that they forgot within the past week. And uh, Vax tells her that that they're going to go together, and and that then they I I, I don't remember exactly what she said. What did, was what was the implication of going together? Was it was it that so, we were going to continue on together or what? So here's the thing with with Keyleth during this this entire sequence, she peels back the armor a bit, which I think is a is a very solid character choice because yeah. Kima's not here, so Keyleth is not having to project the aggression to the extent that she was in the previous episode. So so Keyleth pulls her mask off a little bit. And very easily reveals, both through what she says and how she says it, Keyleth is running primarily on equal parts uncertainty and fear right about now. She's not confident and doesn't feel that she can trust Kima. She she uses the phrase, I'm not sure what we're doing here, or something along those lines, multiple times, as, as I recall. You know, and so she's extremely sensitive and she's she's borderline terrified both of what lies before them and also of the implications of what they've already done. And I think Vax's approach to her was fairly insightful because at that point, Vax intuits that what she needs is protection and reassurance. She needs security and she needs to feel that she is supported, if not entirely safe. And so his implication, I would say, is one of, look, Keyleth, I know you're feeling like you're in free fall at this point. You don't have anything stable under underneath you. You don't have anything you can hold on to and, and uh, a form of a strong personal psychological foundation off of. But you do have us. We're still here. We're still with you. And I think that was honestly probably one of the best things that could have been said by one character to her to sort of get something approaching solid ground underneath her feet before she just goes completely apeshit and loses it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I do want to remark that this uh, th- this is the follow-up to the ish- to the thing that happened last episode that we yes. wanted, that, that should have been closer to the actual event. But that, you know, this is the eventual follow-up that, that, you know, needed to happen. I will remark, however, that this happens minutes after the remark of, oh, we don't need her, we just need her brain, regarding Queen Alara. Yes. So, like, there's this, there's this weird back and forth going on with Keyleth. Yeah, the needle's tipping pretty strong both sides, from <laughs> moment to moment. <laughs> yeah. And again, we're we're getting this sort of issue that we we've talked about before, where a character becoming what they need to be for a scene, and then changing drastically to the next scene. It's like uh, in combat, Keyleth needs to be aloof and witty and funny, and then out of combat, she needs to be vulnerable and scared and 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 sad. And then there's this, it's just this really rapid tick 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 between where, which as a from a narrative perspective, is a sign of uh, poor pacing, uh, yeah. and and also poor character development. Which uh, I wouldn't say necessarily that that Marisha ha- doesn't have character development for Keyleth, but that the the there there is not yet the ability to switch that on and off, you know, back from from combat Keyleth to RP Keyleth. Um, there's no transition there, which, which is 
something that most people need to work on when in regards to their role-playing characters to be fair like that's the, that's that's a hard thing to do is to go from yes. combat character to non-combat character which is why i usually just play aloof disinterested don't <laughs> characters most of the time and then i can be the same person in and out of combat it's an interesting thing with keyleth because i don't feel like when I when I was watching all of these the first time through, this was obviously these are these are our first episodes with with the show, and so these are really forming sort of how we see the characters, and seeing a lot of this stuff, I saw a character who, and this is how I still feel with Kaleth many 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 episodes later was a character who's very much in conflict with herself about a lot of things. That being that being the case, I think it fits for how well it's how well it is depicted in a storytelling sense is one thing. Whether it's true to the character or not, I think that it is. Well no, it's because it the character fits. very regularly is and this is something that you see in characters who, who are who are severely lacking in self confidence, which is Keyleth to a T. Yeah, is they 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 will make these stands, or, or or they will say things, and then very quickly backtrack and go to the other side of the spectrum. Yeah, that pen that pendulum swings pretty far. Yeah, and I always felt with Keyleth that was an intentional thing, and of course there's a little bit of the table talk table attitude. Yeah, that, that comes in whenever you're playing a role playing game. That can't be, you can't not do it. And it's one thing that really separates role playing from from single person story narrative experience. Yeah, it's the it's the group dynamic. Is yes. The, uh, so long as you've got a group of people that like yeah. each other in any small amount, there's going to be this sort of disconnect. But no, I, so no eventually I, I, somebody's going to get murder hobuwe. Yeah, and I'm not saying that. Um, I'm not saying that that the the two aspects of Keyleth are not accurate to what she is and when what she's going through. Just that there's no transitionary period. No, there's not. There's no cooling down or heating up. It's just on or off. She is currently light switch Keyleth. Yes, and, uh, it's dark. which is something I think that would <laughs> be explored in a better aspect if this was strictly a narrative setting. Potentially, yeah. you just don't I've, get the I've, opportunity. I, to do that. I have I have wit I have borne witness to people that can show the transition between combat and non-combat. Um, I know it's possible. Oh no, so. it is entirely possible. It's less possible with 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 six players, seven players. But yeah, so they the Vax, Vax calms Keyleth down. Yep. Uh, and they spend the night, they, they sleep the night and see what the morning brings. Uh, after breaking camp, they head down the path towards the illicit city of, y- of Yugvaril. After some travel, they come to a cavern lined with blue, blue crystals, which Pike had seen previously in her visions. Uh, Tiberius and Percy harvest a few of them, just in case they come in handy later. And a little deeper in the same tunnel, they, they find an offshoot cave blocked by a large boulder. Grog manages to move it, and Vax moves in to see what he can find. Inside, there are a number of corpses, all in a deep state of decay. Uh, they've all been picked over, except for one dwarf whose arm and weapon are still being clutched by a skeleton. Vax tries to grab the armor and is suddenly struck by piercing cold, his body locking up. Uh, Kimo realizes that the armor has been cursed by its former wearer, who must have died angrily. Uh, she manages to remove the curse from the armor and Vax, and he stands up and works, you know, sort of works the kinks out of his body. Kima then takes the golden chainmail, and Vax takes the leather armor she'd been wearing. 
much to the chagrin of her brother. And I believe this is the first time we have Vex naked in front of the party. Yes. It will yep, not be the last. So. No, no. Yes. Um, yeah. And, but I like, and but, but that, that points, to, points for Grog's uh, frenzied sketching, too. Yeah. <laughs> now, this actually brings up a, the flip side of the conversation we had previously. Yes, it does. Which is the uh, the opposite of, of, of our previous conversation, which is female empowerment and the the, the idea of a character. And, and, and I think Vex is definitely, of all the characters, Vex is definitely the one that embodies this entirely. And, and, oh, yeah. And she's she's yeah. the iconic example here. She gets that from Laura Bailey, who also does that. <laughs> yes. Um, which is that I know exactly what I look like. I know exactly what I'm doing. And I'm going to do that regardless of who's around me. Yes. And so she just strips naked and changes her clothes, which is something that it gets represented uh, fairly often in, in, in media. Sometimes it's represented strictly for the fan service. Uh-huh. A lot of the times it's represented strictly for the fan service. <laughs> 90% of the time it's represented strictly for the fan service. How do you think that is something? How, how, in regards to that, how does one do that correctly? You, there is a there is a wonderful quote, uh, referencing George R. R. Martin for the second time, where he was asked by somebody, "How do you write such great female characters?" And his response was in classic George R. R. Martin casual style, "I just always thought of them as people." <laughs> yeah, it's the same thing, you know. I, I, Get quotey here. Another one. I already lost the lost the quote. It's a great I, Joss I, Whedon I, quote. I don't know if it's but... a Joss Whedon quote, but I know the one one that I I have always lived by in my writing is I write the character first and then I assign the gender. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's the key is you don't write these characters as strong female characters with the S, the F, and the C capitalized. The those characters were great when 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 this kind of uh, better female characters were just emerging. The the the, the Red Sonias, the Xenas, the Buffy always broke that mold. But right. Electra, Electra of the character who was a strong badass first, and a, per- a person second. Wonder Woman, sure. Well, in in the comics, in, yes. In certain, in, in certain iterations, Wonder Woman. In popular media, no. No, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> but now, now that we've gotten past that point, it's simply you respect those characters as characters first. And you don't... You can have moments where they're, you know, where they're sexy or where they are the just strictly the badass and, and and nothing else but all of those moments should come naturally or they should come at a point where it's appropriate for that in this storyline for whatever reason it should never be with how your audience is going to react in mind yeah so if you throw in a, if you throw in a scene where a character strips down the, the suicide squad perfect example yeah. As much as I'm one of the apparently few people who actually enjoyed that movie, yes, the you scene are, you where... are one of the one people that enjoyed that movie. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm fine with that. But <laughs> I mean, it, I, means, I, I, it means you get the theater to yourself. So as fun as it was, 
Uh, and there are very many flaws with it, I acknowledge. But the scene where everybody's getting into their getting into their gear and Harley strips down in front of everybody. I mean, come on. There's a little bit of that that you can say, okay, that's her character. She just doesn't give a fuck. But that was such a male gaze moment that it was, it's cringeworthy. And, and it's, it's like so many other sexualized moments. Everybody knows it when they see it. Yes. You know, it's not, you know, if if you're if you're asking, how do I you know demonstrate that this woman is confident, empowered in her own body, takes no shits, and gives none in return? How do I write that? Well, you write it because you know what it looks like when that's not what's happening. Mm-hmm. You you write it the same way you would any other type of character who is confident in their body and is willing yeah. to change in front of any other and other people and doesn't take or give any fucks you know so um yeah the, the the best advice for checking against that that i've ever read was i don't remember who wrote it but if you swap the character's gender or whatever whatever it is about them that makes them a pot- potentially objectionable in a situation swap it to the other one does it change what that character does it's the hawkeye rule yeah yeah so, like, with, with Vex, I fully believe that if Vex was male and not female, she would have, st- or he, in that case, would have still just stripped naked in front of the party and changed. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That that action wouldn't have changed. The other people's reaction might have changed. It might not have changed. Grog may have still been sketching. But, uh, but like, like it, that, that's what you, that with, with anything, with basically anything, whenever you're making a statement regarding X, X, X type of person, Flip the descriptor and see if it still fits. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I find is probably the best way to double check. I mean, the easiest yeah. way is again write the character first, assign the gender later. Mm-hmm. But because then, yeah. then, then, or, then you or can, even you know, and as a writer, look at it from from a sort of meta detached perspective in your own mind. Because you can tell the difference between when you're writing a scene for the character that's in the scene or you're writing the scene for the people who are going to be reading the scene. Right. Yeah. You know, and, well, and, and also, one of them is objectifying and the other one is not. Yes. If you have, if you just say, and then she stripped down and, and, you know, write everybody else's reactions to it, but you don't take a lot of time to describe what that means. <laughs> right. Then you're probably you're not trying to come up character. with the, 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 the perfect three word yeah. phrase to describe the shade of her skin. If right. you're taking yeah, it's like... time to look up cup size to figure out if it's a pro- <laughs> if you're being right. accurate, then you have you're you have gone too far into yeah, audience. It's it, it it you know it's it becomes what's the what's the what's the imperative descriptor of this character? Is it that she's free spirited and 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 casual or is it that she's a she right so like like you 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 write characters you don't write women which is the same with anything you write characters you don't write men you write characters you don't write giants you write characters you don't write and insert any other stereotype (laughs) i mean sometimes you write giants but if they're but that's only if they're brief villains and they die (laughs) without having any other character to them (laughs) 
<laughs> Sword even, fire. Even, even then, but that's not as interesting as you could have written if it was a character. It's true. Like, even, even, like, if, yeah, uh, if, a one-off, a one-off villain that a one-off villain that doesn't stay around very long but is still memorable, Vicini. This is true. I'm just saying <laughs> that we didn't no need to know. We had the backstory of everything else in this in these goddamn yeah. books, but you didn't need to know the full backstories of the trolls in, <laughs> in the Hobbit. All you needed to know is that they were trolls. They were going to eat the eat the party, and that's what happened. Mm-hmm. But but even but even those three trolls had their own character development. Yes, of course. You know, I mean, there there were unique aspects to them. You know, it wasn't an R.A. Salvatore book. Sorry, um, <laughs> you know, right? Uh, I think you know, we've gone off the rails your, again. Yes, we've gone way off weekly the weekly R.A. Salvatore trash of the week. All right, I'll I'll, I'll hold myself to one. <laughs> okay, so back on this has been our tangent episode. <laughs> These are the those are the best episodes, though. I don't care. Vex takes off leather armor and switches in, switches out. There's some comedy bits with the others just reacting, and 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 Laura just going, "So I don't care." <laughs> Which again, and it's, it's also just, a great really sibling moment as yeah, well. Yeah, it's also a great um, sibling moment. You know, yeah. when when they're they're having the tug of war over the armor and whatnot. But yeah, right. Uh, so uh, the sounds of the sounds of waves hitting the shore heralds the team's arrival into a massive cave complete with a huge island in the distance and a lake surrounding it. A stone bridge to the right of where, of where they came in leads onto the island, uh, and as they can see from the distance, the island is covered in a huge fungus, in, in huge, like, large, a large number of huge fungus that glow slightly on their own. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to parse language. It's it's a mushroom forest. It's a mushroom forest. It's a mushroom forest. Yep. It's a, uh, and uh, Clorona confirms that the, uh, that on that island is the city of Young Viril. As they look over the shore uh, and cave, Vex points out to a boat sunk off the, sh- off the shore. Keyleth jumps in, changing into a shark, as Grog follows her to try to pull the boat to the surface and for them to use it to get around the lake. Tiberius, uh, a- as they're doing this, Tiberius magically lifts the boat instead of letting them do it. Because why why let anybody else do things when you can do it all? <laughs> hey, every problem can be fixed with the addition of more Tiberius. <laughs> and he uses a spell for that too, doesn't he? <laughs> that is Tiberius. Yep. He uses he, he uses Yeah, no, he he wastes he wastes a spell slot on that one. Yep. He wastes yep. a fifth level spell slot on that. Telekinesis, baby. He wastes a fifth level spell slot lifting a boat that was about to be dragged to shore. Uh-huh. Because because character can because character consistency. I mean, it's it is perfectly in keeping with his character. It <laughs> and that's all we're gonna say about that. It is perfectly in keeping with his character. And then he so yeah he lifts it up and uh, Percy begins patching it up. And once they're in the holes, they tie off a rope for Keyleth to pull them. Keyleth has become the workhorse. Uh, some of them get on the carpet, and the rest get on the boat, and they all uh, f- uh, go out and check out uh, an inlet cave on the eastern section of the lake. Uh, who who spotted the the inlet cave? Was it? I do not remember. I don't remember who spotted it. I think it was it was one of the twins. I think, but I can't remember which. They they go around and they 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 go around and and check out that. But yeah, because recon. Yeah, because recon. You know, you want to make sure that there's nothing. 
it's like some secret passageway hidden that way. As they move around the light, they get a better view of the fungal trees that cover the landscape of the main island, as well as a few tops of the buildings in the center. And from one of them comes a green glow with a sickly color that is basically the same they had seen in the eyes of the queen before they, before she, before Kavarn killed her. Uh, they make landfall on a small beach, and uh, Vex and Scanlan head into the cave while... Uh, sorry, Vax and Vax and Scanlan head into the cave while Vex follows... Uh, Vex and Tiberius fall above them on the carpet. As they so they enter the small cave, and the smell of water and mold gives way to rotting flesh and noxious fumes. Uh, they find the remains of a camp with four bodies scattered across a small room and a chest, half buried in the far side of the room. As Vax, or wait, which one of them approaches the chest? Vax. Vax, Vax, Vax. approaches the chest. Yes, Vax approaches the chest. I know we're used to Vex doing it, but yeah. And one of the corpses turns its head and smiles at him. And that's where the episode ends. Yep. Nice, so I want to nice, talk a little bit. Nice uh, go ahead. Yes, no. very nice cliffhanger. I want to talk a little bit about the symbology of light in the campaign so far. Okay. Because um, we have the green glow, which it was referenced primarily starting with this episode, but in a number of of instances uh, as foreshadowing for Kavarn's influence and his his power. We've also had repeatedly uh, from Clarota the blue glow of the arcane energy and gift that he has, the, the gift that got him thrown out as a as a uh, untouchable, more or less, uh, from his own illithid society. And for me, at least, I tend to look for symbolism, even if maybe mm-hmm. or maybe the author intended it for to be there or not <clears throat> but this episode for me was where it was struck um oh and then of course we've got the uh, the glowing fungus around this obvious place of power because they've been referencing things like temples and ancient ruins and that sort of thing which from a from a from a trope sort of perspective especially in fantasy something had to be there for there to be ruins after the fact, and temples are pretty much always places of power, places of influence, uh, either divine or magical or both. And I like how Matt has been using, in a subterranean environment, light is power, almost. There's a, there's a very strong equalization there, right. at, least, at least from, from my watching of it. What, did you guys pick up on that? Is that something I am coming up with by myself? What's going on here? So, I didn't pick up on it, but that's because I was paying attention to other things. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean that's that's something that that I have picked up on. I don't think that that's a pretty common thing in D anD. d Is yeah. you know when when you are a a magic user. Whether you're a priest or a or or an arcane caster or what have you, your spells are usually delineated by light in some form. Whether it's as literal as the light spell, or whether it's magic missiles are described as glowing darts of light that that, that shoot out. So, and that's something that uh, is is. That so that symbol and that mythology is as old as storytelling itself in terms of fire being the source of illumination and the, the source of uh, knowledge, both good and bad. Mm-hmm. Pandora's box, she opened up the box and what was described as coming out in the, orig- in the myths 
was all of these different lights that were yeah. that unleashed the evils of the world. So yeah, it's it's a great symbol and it's a great uh, sort of metaphor uh, that I always enjoy seeing referenced because using color, color has such strong uh, mental associations for us, mm-hmm. whether it's black, you know, black is darkness or or red can be passion in whatever way, whether it's rage or, or love or or what have you. It's such an easy and yet not lazy, unless you're really bad at doing it, way of throwing out those hints and throwing out those signs that immediately if you're if you're if you're paying attention to that kind of stuff, you're gonna lock into. Yeah, Green Lantern Core. <clears throat> Green Lantern Core. Yep. Great example. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which by turns has been both good and lazy in their handling of color. Well, yes. But still, right. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, for for me specifically, though, especially in this, this situation, because, you know, we're most of your standard fantasy races, with the exception of dwarves, um, are surface dwellers for the most part. Mm-hmm. And so this, this uh, setting is unique in that they almost from the beginning, it's under dark. You know, which is which is a lightless environment, right? Na- naturally speaking, and so the the contrast or the use of light and power, I agree with you, definitely has a lot of a lot of history in the the human sort of just salt because you know go, going back to our earliest tribal societies you know yeah humans have always been scared of the dark right light light is our friend you know we're 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 a diurnal species um we you know the, your our earliest religions are generally all sun based you know fire like you said has been been the 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 symbol for for power for knowledge for enlightenment for millennia and so it's interesting to me in a to see that that same that same parallel drawn in these underground societies as well. I mean, even mm-hmm. the Duragar who have dark vision, no problem, still make use of these glowing red crystals. You know, uh, they 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 have glowing lava surrounding their their stronghold and fortress. You know, granted it's a lower intensity, but it's still light in the midst of of a dark. I, um... Yeah, I mean that's you know I, for them. I think that it's mostly because half the party has sucked vision and can't see in the dark. That that's a valid well, consideration but that's also, as well. But that's not a, a narrative consideration. <laughs> no. no, it's not. No, it's not. But but like it's like oh, yeah. yeah, yes, light light has a lot of narrative significance and, and can have a lot of narrative significance, but in this particular case, I don't think it has that much narrative significance. I think it's mostly just so that people can see. <laughs> I don't think so, because you're also you're going off of this is an established thing for under dark, dark cultures, at least as you're talking about, like, the the place that is most famously known for having an underdark was the, the Forgotten Realms. Yeah. Look at Menzo Brands and the world of the, 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 the society of the drow. Look at the drow themselves, who one of their core inborn abilities is the ability to do dancing lights. Mm-hmm. Light is light is not necessarily in the underdark. Light isn't just about being able to see. I mean, yes, it's a functionally useful thing 
for if you have you know NPC if you have player characters who can't see, but there's almost always a sorcerer or 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 a, a cleric or somebody who can cast the lights bolt, and you can have torches if nothing else. Right. If you're actually putting light down there, there's usually some kind of significance for it, at least in my experience. Mm-hmm. And and I mean like you know and and the use of light in fantasy goes all the way back to Tolkien. I mean, yeah. and and beyond. Um, I mean, the use of know. light and fantasy goes back to Shakespeare, sir. So. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. But I, but in, in terms of in terms of modern narrative fantasy, I should say to, to narrow that down a little bit. But yeah, yeah because um, the uh, many 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 lights were described uh, in a Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah, oh yeah. Yep. Yeah. No, there's there's a lot of yeah. No, Midsummer uh, has a ton of of light references, you know, but yeah, you know, cause I mean like Frodo's gift of the light of Arendelle, uh, you know, and, and the, the power that that brought with it. Uh, and mm-hmm. that's, that's, I mean, you know, it's, it's a, it's a highly advanced Elven flashlight, but it's a fucking flashlight. Yeah. Let's be honest. <laughs> um, you know, right. And so I, I was just, very I mean, so is Sting in the, in the that, you know, so right, is Sting kinda, that Sting, yeah, yeah, Sting, absolutely. Sting is a highly advanced elven fish finder, yeah. Um, so, but yeah, no, and and just seeing that elven, sort of thread. Elven fish finder? <laughs> <laughs> I just say things. I don't think about them ahead of time. Jeez, guys. It glows, it glows when orcs and goblins are near. Yes. <laughs> The things that Not you... fish. Watch <laughs> <laughs> yeah. goblins in no ever consideration have ever been considered fish. Or the equivalency of fish. Well, <laughs> With the no, exception no, no. of if there's no, no, a dragon no. in the room. <laughs> because fish finders are used when you go out to a sunset. I mean, you call it fishing, but hunt fish. Right. This is what you use when you have Seeing is used when you go out to <laughs> hunt orcs. You hunt fish for food. <laughs> Maybe they're wait. We don't know. Maybe Steve guys, guys, don't creator. draw. Don't don't try orcs. and push my similes beyond orcs. what they were intended to accomplish. It's orcs. not going to end well. I guarantee you, orc steaks do not taste good. Well. W- Maybe Sting's creator got a taste for it somehow. We don't know. Also, it's a toothpick. So that's been our tangent episode, everybody. <laughs> we have been Final Show Films. We produce a wide variety of content every day of the week. John, take us the rest of the way. <laughs> it's a dagger. <laughs> I love that you broke John. <laughs> He's like finder. not even able to continue. It's not a fish finder. We'll put a poll up on Twitter. <laughs> or <laughs> something. Is <laughs> Sting an elven fish finder? No one will understand the poll. Oh, yes. They'll just have we... to listen to the episode then. We have no one's going to listen to this episode, <laughs> or Whatever. the one after it's this the, ever again. This is the, this is the last episode. episode. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you all for listening. We have been Final Show Films. We produce a wide variety of content every day of the week. You can check us out on our website at finalshowfilms.com. Yes, check us out on our Patreon page at patreon.com/fsfilms. Uh, if you, for some reason, want to support us after this episode, you can do so on our Patreon page. Patreon. Uh, uh, we appreciate all of our patrons, especially our $25 supporters, Chris Comfort and Tonic. 
You can also support us on our website, fellowshipfilms.com, uh, where we have a PayPal donate button that you can click on uh, to give us a one-time donation. We appreciate that. Uh, we also appreciate the folks over at 411mania.com. Jeremy, tell us about 411mania.com. 411mania.com. If you're looking to find out what, what the, the how good or bad the latest episode of Error was, or if you want to know uh, what happened on tonight's episode of NXT, or if you want to see if, if you want to see a ranking of the Buffy epi- uh, seasons in celebration of his twentieth uh, anniversary that happened this weekend, we're the place for you. We co- we're a a pop culture fan site that covers everything that geeks would be interested in: movies, TV, a little bit of comics, uh, music, uh, games, wrestling, MMA, and now everything Final Show Films does. Check us out. Yeah, and if you also want to see whether or not there's a content warning on any Final Show Films podcast, you can go to fullmania.com to find out. <laughs> for the record, Season five's the best. There will be a content warning on this one. So yeah, thanks for listening. We'll see you all next time. Say goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.